talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. If this weather keeps up, I'll be taking off more than my mask. Happy weekend. Here's Scott Thompson. No, not a, not there. That's not that's not where it's supposed to be, and that's not funny. That's cheeky, young man. All right, uh, have you looked outside yet? <laughs> It's an amazing day. It was yesterday uh, for St. Patty's Day, and we'll take more of this, that's for sure. Spring on the way this weekend, arriving on Sunday, first full day on Monday. Uh, what can we expect for the rest of all of this? I just say we put in our order right now to Ross Hall, Global News Meteorologist, for at least another month of that, and then we'll go from there. Ross, good to have you. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. I am doing great. Yes, taking orders. Uh, we won't talk about the price just yet, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, I know more of, what, more of what we had, I'm sure, and what we've experienced today, uh, many people are going to be requesting that. As to whether I can deliver, well, we'll see. Yeah, you know, again, depending on uh, the, the reaction to Ross really depends on what the weather's like, either the high five or what the heck are you serving up here, pal? Uh, all right, so experience what we're going through because this appears that's it because we had a ton of snow this winter, and it looks like is that it for us, Ross, or we could we still see another blast? Well, I, I think this is definitely not the end of winter. It you know maybe a bit of a false spring for us because – uh, we can still see big temperature swings, and we've already experienced that this week. If we can uh, think back to earlier this week when we actually experienced some snow around the area, and now you kind of forget yep. that because temperatures have been rising close to 20 degrees yesterday, the warmest day around Hamilton in uh, near seven years. So uh, warmest March 17th, I should say. And, you know, yeah, we are going to likely see these ups and downs. Now, into the weekend, as we get into the start of spring, for officially at 11.33 a.m. on Sunday, it's going to be showers that we're dealing with. We could see a bit of wet snow early Sunday morning. And I'm not seeing any significant snow at this week, at this point into next week. But, you know, if you want to look at averages, Scott, uh, 8.4 centimeters is the average snowfall for April around Hamilton. So that's the average. Sometimes we see more, sometimes we see less. So, um, you know, we got we to gotta be prepared for the fact that we're not done just yet at this point in March. Yeah, we all remember, you know, the first week of April, all the, all the odd time you'll get a blast and wonder where the heck that uh, this all came from. Now, what about the uh, ground temperature? Because, again, we've had a lot of snow for a long time, uh, and and it's obviously it's just melting now. Uh, if we get another blast of snow, will it stay or will it dissipate pretty quickly? Well, you bring up a good point, because what, what's happened, the reason why we are moving into spring is because that sun angle, the, the highest sun angle, is now starting to move north of the equator, so that's when we start to move into the March equinox. We start to see about 50-50 daylight and nighttime hours, and we'll start to win out on the, on the daylight hours as we move towards the official start of uh, summer in, in June. But uh, the, the sun angle is higher, and we're, starting to, we're gaining three minutes of daylight each day. So it becomes more and more difficult as we move through March and April to, to keep that snow on the ground. But I can bring up the, I don't know if you recall, the ice storm of April 2018, there were plenty of ice pellets and freezing rain at that point. So, uh, you know, we can still see snow sticking. Now, it doesn't stick stick as long, obviously, as it does in January and February. uh, But I I wouldn't take off the winter tires just yet. Um, Now, as to whether we're going to see a major snowstorm of 15 plus centimeters, I don't think that's going to be the case either. But, yes, you certainly likely will see flakes flying from now until the start, likely the start in mid of April, midpoint of April. And some accumulations are possible, too, especially higher terrain around the mountain, for instance. Uh, Those areas can obviously see the snow stick a little longer there. So I was lucky enough to go skiing uh, this year for the first time in many years, uh, just last weekend, which was sort of like the last big blast up there. Uh, But they said they've got so much snow up there this year that they can ski uh, well into the spring just by grinding it down because the base is is so uh, great. We've got a lot of snow this year. Yeah, that's been the great thing, especially as you head uh, you know, towards cottage country and some of the ski resorts. They've got bases running from 50 to 100 centimeters. So it'll be machine groom granular. It's going to be spring conditions. If you're thinking of heading, uh, heading skiing 
say this weekend. It's going to be wet, especially through the day on Saturday, likely drying out on Sunday. Uh, but next week, you know, temperatures are going to be relatively mild, but that snow will be sticking around. And it looks like overnight temperatures, uh, as we head into next week, portions of next week anyway, will be below the freezing mark. So that will be good for uh, any resorts or any, any ski, ski places that do make their own snow. That will help in that process, too, to kind of uh, bring up some of those levels after some melting during the day at, with that higher sun angle as we move into uh, warmer conditions through March. All right, Ross, so we've had uh, two good days of weather here. What's in for Hamilton over the course of this weekend and into next week? So you want me to deliver the uh, the not-so-great news, I guess. <laughs> great well, conditions. We yeah. should have star- <laughs> started with this, Ross. <laughs> it's my job. Uh, yeah, so basically uh, we do have some showers on the way. It could even be a rumble of thunder overnight into tomorrow morning. But I, I think those showers will arrive more late evening, so uh, 8, 9, 10 o'clock. So if you want to head out on a walk, uh, early this evening after work, you'll be fine. And then showers throughout the day on Saturday. Uh, the drier day will be Sunday, and it's going to be a little cooler. We're still going to get to the double digits on Saturday, but some cooler air on Sunday. And cooler meaning a high of around 8 or 9 degrees, and that's still above average. So I don't think it's much to complain about, but we've had such beautiful sky conditions over the last couple of days, coupled with the mild weather. Yeah, a bit of an adjustment in terms of uh, the rain that's on the way, likely about 10 to 15 millimeters. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The headline from the Canadian press says uh, Ontario NDP removes longtime member from caucus and bars him from running in election. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath has kicked longtime member Paul Miller out of caucus and will not let him run under the party banner in the June election over what has been described or he, he has described as, quote, false allegations. Miller, who represented Hamilton East Stony Creek since 2007, said he's consulting a lawyer pursuing legal avenues. Uh, neither Miller nor the party would discuss what was at the heart of this dispute. A party source said it's something from the last four years and is not a police matter. A brief statement Thursday from Horvath said that she made the decision after the party concluded its pre-election vetting process for Miller. Uh, quote, I've been informed of the information uncovered during that vetting process and find it to be clearly unacceptable. Uh, Miller disputes the NDP's finding, saying it's a false allegation that they've created and it will be brought to the attention of the public in due course. I think they want to change the face of the party and move in a different direction with different candidates. I think they're getting rid of the old guys. The party did not comment on uh, Miller's claims. So uh, that's a big switch in um, in Hamilton politics. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University. He's with us now. Henry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. What's your take on all of this? Well, it, it is interesting and a bit shocking because it's so close to the election. Uh, apparently, this new information is something that goes back a number of years and why they waited so long to act on it is, you know... Very, you know, very unusual. Uh, but I guess what happened is they they were unsure whether they should act on it, and then uh, at some point they just decided, well, um, if we're uneasy about it, and the uh, opposition, uh, one of the opposition part, other other two parties raises it during the campaign, it'll throw our campaign off, and so we just better get rid of, you know, basically get rid of this problem before the campaign begins. But I think. Uh, you know, it, they, they should have done it earlier. I mean, and and also, uh, they really haven't uh, given you much of a any kind of understanding of why they're doing this. You know, what was the na- nature of this problem that they found with him? And I think that is likely to be demoralizing to some of the uh, workers in the uh, NDP. Apparently, the constituency association didn't know anything about this. And uh, there's also voters are going to say, I mean, this guy was pop very popular in his constituency. Two out of the four times he won there, he was over 50%, including the last time. Um, he also, and this has not been mentioned in any of the uh, dispatches about him I've been going through, is that he also had a lot of uh, support from all, personal support over the years uh, from other ma- for all the, from all the parties. He was a deputy speaker of the legislature, um, uh, you know, up until. Uh, 2018. So to get that job, you have to have, uh, you know, a support from all three parties. And uh, although he was the NDP, you know, nominee for that, he by the speaker, uh, he was, uh, you know, he he was supported by everybody. So uh, in the, in the legislature, certainly uh, the other parties. So 
it's a, it's a bit uh, you know it it's really is uh, you know a bit of a head scratcher here why did they do it and you know there should be probably some information put out about that well, it seems Andrew Horvath's making it sound like well during the routine vetting process that you know we do before every election or every uh, campaign that that that's where this has come up. But as you said, he's been around for a long time, mm-hmm. and there's been some chatter of this before. So why is this like the first time he's ever been vetted? Well, I mean, I'm sure he's been vetted before, and I mean, it's well known. He, I mean, he is although he's well liked, everybody recognizes he's a bit of a maverick. He has some rough edges. And, uh, you know, he's the type of guy who speaks his mind. Uh, you don't, <laughs> he generally doesn't, uh, you know, he generally, he doesn't uh, beat around the bush and uh, about things. And, uh, so, you know, some people are irritated by him, uh, have been over the years. But, you know, basically, I think a lot of people, uh, particularly the voters out in Hamilton East Stony Creek and, uh, and, and many people in the NDP, and I said other parties as well, recognize, I mean, this is a person that, you know, you'll, if something's bothering you, him, he's going to tell you. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he'll, t- you know, but he's a very sociable guy as, as well. And so, you know, the, the voters liked him, and he was well-known. It, it, it doesn't usually, you know, you usually don't vet somebody who you've known for all this time and has done very well in the legislature and in elections and right before the next election saying, we found something bad about him and he's got to go. And not only won't he be a candidate the next time, they kicked him out of the caucus, you know, say, you're no longer a new Democrat after he's won, you know, after he's won four elections in Hamilton East Stony Creek as a new Democrat. So it's, you know, it's, a, it's jarring, I'm sure, for, to a lot of people, and they don't have a clue why this was done. Uh, on the ballot, either way, he says, um, what do you make of that? Is that possible? Uh, can he make uh, make waves there, or is there too much baggage? Well, I think, uh, you know, that the first reaction is somebody who gets in this situation, and he, there have been other people as well, actually a whole bunch, uh, actually in the, uh, in, in the Ford government, too, has kicked out a bunch of people, too. But he's done it earlier, and so it's no, more, no, no longer news. But uh, usually it's very, it's very hard for a person to win as an independent, even if you've been in that constituency for a while. He's most, more likely to damage the NDP's chances of winning that riding, and that, that certainly is not good for the party or for the leader. Uh, and uh, but they probably figured that the whatever that information would have was, if it comes out during the campaign, it'd be worse than what they'd be suffering now. But we just don't know. And uh, so you know, it's a it, it's a hard one to figure out. And, and and I just think they would be better suited. I'm convinced the party would. And and I would say this about any party, they'd be better suited if they sort of told the public, this is this is no the reason why we right. can't we can't accept them anymore. Uh, as a member of our party or a candidate in the next election, and uh, and I think uh, you know if I was a, a you know a, a voter in in Hamilton East Stony Creek, I'd probably say, hey, you know, I think the party owes me an explanation because I, you know, because we we supported them a majority vote, you know, and four times we kept sending them back. So will we find out this information, the reason why, before the next election, or will that be kept know. secret till then? I, I would think somebody's bound to leak it at some point. Uh, it's, I think it's going to be hard not to leak this information. So somebody, and especially there's going to be a lot of pressure on people who know, and uh, you know, and they know, and they're also going to, you know, the people who made this decision, this vetting committee. I'm not even sure who's on the vetting committee. I probably could find out, but I don't know now. Uh, you know, people are going to be going to the vetting committee and saying, what are you doing here? You know, you're caught, you're, you're yeah. making all these waves right before the election when we're trying to win an election, and you throw out a guy who uh, easily wins, uh, you know, wins the election every time he runs in Hamilton East Stony Creek. So, and this could be, so I have a feeling some of, some, somebody's going to get, you know, pressure from people they know, and they're going to start giving out some of the tidbits. Like we had some, some, mm. Some one of the persons connected there has already said, well, uh, we know it had nothing to do, it's not criminal behavior, it has nothing to do with racism, it has nothing to do with the Me Too movement. (laughs) More of what it's not than what it is. Yeah, they're telling Uh, you what what it isn't. Yeah. But, you know, how about telling us what it is? 
We know uh, as we've come through over two years of this now, remember it was March break when uh, everyone said, all right, go home. And uh, here we are, uh, you know, in March break 2022 edition. And Dr. Peter Uni has uh, been a figurehead through all of this, director of Ontario Science Table and professor of medicine and epidemiologist of the univer- uh, at the University of Toronto and has been, uh, you know, just someone we could we could watch and go to to help us decode what was going on as we tried to wait our through wait our way through this global pandemic and we're finding out today that uh, dr peter uni will be leaving us uh dr peter uni thank you so much for the time i hope you're doing well I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm actually a bit emotional. <laughs> How this all evolved today this was was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. You you know what, doctor? I think we all are because you've been in our homes through the TV screen, you've been on the radio through our shows and whatever, directing us all through this. So even myself talking to you this way, I we've never met. Uh, I feel the same way. And before we get started, uh, I want to I want to thank you for everything that you've done for us and your crew and your staff in trying trying to negotiate this global pandemic where nobody knew what the heck was going on. And you tried to do it in such a way that we all understood and and and, and we all could climb aboard and, and join the message and row in the same direction and, and, and try to help us through this. So uh, from, uh, from myself and I'm sure all of us and anyone listening, thank you so much for all you've done for us. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say, really. So uh, first, you know, and I don't want to get too personal, but your reasons for for stepping down, your reasons for leaving, we understand you're going to Oxford. Yeah, yeah, look, you know, we we, uh, we all have our private lives and our situation is just so that we have, you know, our parents, my wife's and my parents uh, are getting older and two out of the four really got quite heavily ill during the pandemic, not COVID, which showed us the limitations of being on the wrong side of the pond, no? And in addition, we have uh, our uh, oldest daughter, we're a blended family and we have four kids, you know, our oldest daughter is in boarding school in Switzerland and would like to finish high school there and our uh, oldest son is working in Switzerland. So this means, you know, there was a pullback and Elena felt clearly then during the pandemic, it's probably time. And when then Oxford just made this really generous offer, you know, it just all fell into place. And it's even though I will be heartbroken, but and I really will, um, it's probably the right next step for us as a family. And we will stay connected very much with uh, Ontario. So uh, you said this came together quite quickly, so maybe you haven't even had a chance to process it all. But as you look back at the last two years, Dr. Uni, what do you and your part in it? And again, you've taken us to the point where we can, you know, I feel like a bird going out of a nest and flying for the first time after two years. What are your thoughts as you process the last two years? Oh, I think it's really important, you know, just to look back and realize, you know, if we struggled we essentially were all standing in the same shoes worldwide. No? And uh, this was a struggle for every single one of us personally. It was a struggle for the governments. There was no government out there who wasn't struggling sometime. Even the Danes, you know, who had it under control so well, quite, you know, quite frequently, sometimes they hadn't, etc. And it's just important, you know, this is, a, it, it, this is a very democratic process. We're in a crisis. We were in a crisis. Now, I can't even say we're approaching the end of the crisis because we're already in a new one. But, you know, it makes us human that we struggle and we just try to maneuver it. And the way we did that, you know, it was a bumpy road. But when we compare our stats with nearly every uh, other um, northern country in the in the Western world, we actually did remarkably well here in Ontario. And I think that's, uh, you know, it may have been bumpy, but still, if we look at it, we sort of managed, which is, you know, probably considering everything and also our structural challenges with our long-term care homes, etc. Considering everything, we didn't fare too badly, really not. Uh, you mentioned it was time for you and your family, and also you felt that with the pandemic. Can you expand a bit on that as far as the pandemic side of this and where we are and, and, and how comfortable you feel of where Ontario, where the world is, where Canada is, as we slowly start to ease these restrictions? 
I think, you know, what happened is that we as a population, and this worked really again now quite well here in Ontario, really were able to build up enough immunity and have nearly everybody uh, exposed at least once to the virus, hopefully with a vaccine, but some of us um, through infection. And the more we basically get exposed, you typically need it at least three times based on um, what we see now, you know, in basic research data. Uh, until you start to, you know, have a more mature immune response. And when this happens, the phase changes. It's not that the virus necessarily gets milder. It may get more severe again. We need to be aware of that. We shouldn't have illusions. But what it changes the experience for us is that we all are fitter to deal with the challenge. That's the immunity that we gain. And the more, you know, we go into the future, there will be probably next waves of infection. And if we're a bit lucky, it's only seasonal. The longer this takes, the more we will move into something that allows us to be exposed with this virus. And perhaps only 15 to 20% of the population will have a symptomatic infection. This won't be the case next autumn, most likely. Then will be more, I would say, I don't know, 40 to 50% of people experiencing a symptomatic infection if we're not careful. And the point is then that we just need to acknowledge, yeah, we need a few years to move into, you know, this mythical space of endemicity. Mm. This won't be this year, but we are on the right track. And if we continue to tread a bit carefully and use our tools well, you know, that's vaccination, that's masks, access to drugs for those who are most vulnerable. This needs to be organized as well. And these people also need to have access to early tests, etc. All of that will help us. So things will change as long as we don't, uh, you know, stick our heads into the sand and say, it's over, it's over, we're good. That will be a bit premature. Dr. Peter Uni with us, Director of Ontario Science Table for a little while longer and Professor of Medicine and Epidemiology at the University of Toronto. After leading us through all of this for the first two years, uh, Dr. Uni has accepted a position at the University of Oxford in England to be closer to his family. Doctor, thank you so much for everything you've done and good luck, be well. Thanks a lot. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping today, their first official meeting in months, two hours, so that's got to be a good thing. Uh, to give us an update, here's Heather Urich's West, global news reporter covering the Washington Bureau and is with us now. Heather, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good, so okay. uh, what has happened during this meeting? Obviously, two hours, that must be a good sign, no? Yeah, a two-hour meeting between the uh, the biggest uh, the leaders of the biggest uh, economies of the world, so a lot at stake. Um, and, and we got a little bit from both countries in terms of a readout. Uh, not a, a ton of details, I have to say. Uh, first up, we had the uh, Chinese state news agency out with a readout uh, early this morning, even before the, uh, the call was, uh, was finished. Um, even though, you know, China has kind of stayed on the sidelines, refusing to condemn the actions of, of one of its allies in Russia, uh, there, there were some words that the Chinese uh, president, um, according to this readout, told President Biden that, uh, that this, the conflict in Ukraine wasn't a good thing and that as the, the two uh, superpowers, the leaders of the, of the two superpowers, it was China and U.S.'s duty to, you know, kind of stand for peace. So a, a pretty positive sign there. Um, we got even less information from the White House. The White House uh, readout saying that, um, you know, President Biden made it very, very clear that uh, any sort of support would not be tolerated. Uh, they wouldn't go into details of what, um, you know, what kind of repercussions uh, China would be facing. Uh, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, just had a briefing, and, he, and she said that basically, you know, the ball is in China's court. The Chinese president is going to have to decide, you know, what side of history they want to be on. Um, will they be, you know, backing Russia and, you know, incurring the, the wrath of the West and, and the economic sanctions that could follow or could they be using their considerable leverage against uh, their leverage with, I should say, the Russian president and, and in order to kind of broker a ceasefire? Uh, we understand that this was a scheduled meeting, so it would have happened most likely anyway. Was there a lot of other uh, things on the agenda or is it mostly Russia, Ukraine? Yeah, the, the Ukraine uh, really dominated uh, this meeting and this meeting came out of a, a seven hour kind of marathon session 
that happened on Monday between the uh, U.S. Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and the Chinese uh, counterpart in in Rome. Uh, the two sides have uh, agreed to keep the lines of communication open. They will be meeting again, although um, we don't have another uh, meeting scheduled as of yet. But of course, you know, all eyes are certainly on. China, and and you know, as we watch to see what they choose to do next, um, really a lot of people trying to anticipate what China will decide to do as it's kind of walking a fine line. It has a very strategic relationship with Russia, a lot of economic ties with Russia, and it also stands to benefit if this conflict continues because it means that NATO countries, the U.S., the West, all of their resources are tied up in Ukraine, and perhaps they're distracted from what China may be doing in the Indo-Pacific. It's worth noting that a Chinese Mm. aircraft carrier sailed through the sensitive Taiwan Strait just hours before the leaders had that call this morning. So, you know, it is a tricky situation. Any chatter about uh, Biden questioning uh, the Chinese president on them funding uh, the war or helping Russia with munitions, what have you? Yeah, this was something that a U.S. official uh, made known on the weekend, last weekend, that that they were aware that there was a request made from Russia to China looking for either uh, economic support, military support, perhaps both. We know that uh, Russia is burning through ammunitions and personnel and that these economic sanctions have been very, very punishing. They're looking for a bit of a lifeline. This is something that both Beijing and um, and the Kremlin have denied. Uh, you know, during the White House briefing, this question was asked uh, to Jen Psaki uh, over and over and over again, but uh, they weren't kind of uh, budging uh, beyond the details that that were released. Just based, just basically that the president had made it very clear that any sort of backing would not be tolerated. So, uh, you know, as far as if there was any further proof that uh, China, uh, that Russia has made the request or is that or if China is thinking about it, uh, something that we just don't know. Any word, uh, you know, or hearing anything about whether this is making China feel awkward or are they playing one side against the other? Any opinion on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, uh, you have to kind of look into what their motivations would be. On one hand, you know, this is President Xi could be could be the statesman here. He, he could kind of ride in and use his leverage and use his relationship to really broker a deal. But on the other hand, there there are things. There is a benefit to having this uh, this conflict continue as well. I mean, I think both sides are kind of holding some of their cards to their chest, but this is definitely something to be watching very carefully because we are talking about the two global superpowers and and what nobody wants really is to see what's happening in Ukraine become a superpower proxy war. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. What is happening is the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine continues as we're into day 23. Uh, Obviously, uh, a no-fly zone out of the question as far as starting World War III. Uh, So the propaganda is going on hot and heavy, including Arnold Schwarzenegger doing a video, uh, trying to get it on social media and to the eyes and ears of those uh, that are in Russia. We've certainly seen uh, demonstrations there. There and police trying to contain that. What happens to activists who are in Russia and are spreading the message that Putin does not want his people to hear? Let's bring in Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology, Sociological Studies, uh, Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Thanks for the time, Matthew. Hope you're well. Great to be with you. So uh, your thoughts, uh, are, is this message getting through to people, citizenry in, in, uh, in Moscow, in Russia, and what is happening to those who are actually protesting? Well, it's a, it's a complicated picture because um, there's no doubt that the Russian government um, strictly controls the information that's provided on official TV sources, um, which are how most people get their information. Um, in recent months, it has really been cracking down on independent sources of media that might prevent uh, present a different picture, and has also recently adopted a law by parliament um, criminalizing it, uh, making a criminal offense to, to present uh, false information about the operations in Ukraine, which they don't want to call a war, with sentences up to 15 years. 
So on the one hand, there is this very heavy-handed crackdown on, on even spreading information about the war. Um, on the other hand, um, these two societies are quite closely linked. Um, there are people with family members on both sides of the border. Um, people do have internet access in Russia, and um, soldiers are also able to tell people what they have experienced. So um, I think it's clear that the, the protests have been larger than the, the authorities expected, and presumably it hasn't helped that the war has not produced the speedy victory that Putin wanted. Um, it is true that uh, people who engage in protests do, they're taking a risk. I think we have to respect the, the bravery of people in Russia who um, take a public stand against the war now, given, given the possibility of draconian uh, prison sentences that has been, um, that I just mentioned. It's also worth pointing out that some people have um, left Russia precipitously in order to avoid the possibility of being punished um, for, for sharing their views openly about the war. So, Matthew, would you say this is more about the lack of info getting to Russian people or the fact that the society is divided on whether this is right or wrong? Um, at the risk of sounding wishy-washy, I, I think it's both. Um, so there has been um, you know, an attempt to kind of gauge the public opinion of, people, of the Russian people about this war. It's, it's difficult because um, this is an authoritarian society in which people are well aware that um, expressing negative views about the government can be dangerous, particularly now um, with the sort of um, regime of censorship becoming more and more strict. Um, I think it, it, you know, it's probably fair to say that most people in Russia, at least on the surface, support this war. Um, it, it does seem to be the case that in major metropolitan centers among younger and more educated people, um, there is a kind of more, more larger anti-war um, position emerging or consolidating among some social groups um, in a way that is um, possibly damaging to the government. Um, so um, in recent weeks, a number of prominent artistic and journalistic figures have expressed their, their disagreement to the war and in some cases resigned from their positions. As I mentioned, some of them have fled the country. Um, so all of this is, is painting a picture of, if, not, if it's not the case that most people in Russia are opposed to the war, which I think probably it's not, nonetheless, there's more opposition than was anticipated. Uh, obviously, we've seen the impact that uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, President Zelensky has made with his social media and his ability to connect uh, with those in his country. Putin, obviously the exact opposite, but now he's holding almost Donald Trump-like rallies. What are your thoughts? Well, I think it's likely to be a response to the setbacks that they have been experiencing. So um, some of the imagery at, at these events is really, it's really horrifyingly fascistic. I mean, it looks like something out of the 1930s. Um, and it, it seems to be part of kind of a broader messaging campaign des designed to convey the point that uh, people who criticize the government or the policies of the government in relation to Ukraine are, are enemies of Russia. And, and Putin actually said that in a, in a recent particularly blood-curdling public statement that was broadcast on TV. So it, it, it may be an effort to kind of um, to take, the, take Putin's message to the public in a way that I think he probably wasn't intending to do originally. So from what we can see, the, the Russian government's expectation was that the war would be over quickly and that they would basically knock out the Ukrainian government and compel it to surrender. Um, that didn't happen. And they now have to kind of manage public opinion more actively than they expected. And I think that these, these rallies are part of that. Uh, any idea, we, we've seen the video come out yesterday with Arnold Schwarzenegger and his nine-minute uh, uh, thoughts to Russian people, telling them to, to fight the propaganda and, and really appeal to the personal side of Russians and his experience in, in, the, in the place that he loves. He loves the people and such, but they're being misled. Does something like this have an impact? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think in the short run... Um, you know, it's it, Russia is is a society with a lot of people on the internet, but a lot of people are not, right? So you really have to be able to access foreign sources of information in order to be able to to hear what um, former Governor Schwarzenegger said. In the long run, I do wonder about the extent to which Russia can really um, the Russian government can really keep knowledge of the war, um, knowledge of the atrocities committed by the Russian military in the war and knowledge of the, the critical statements made by, by foreign, um, by foreign uh, noted people like, like Schwarzenegger, secret from the Russian public. I, it seems as though the longer the war goes on, the more this information is going to be seeping out into general awareness.
Also, if Putin starts to take a more aggressive stance against those who don't agree with him and pushes back, I mean, how is that going to play with Russian people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think um, there is definitely a change taking place in terms of what people understand to be permitted. So, you know, for the first for the first years of Russia, Putin's rule, I think the average um, middle class educated urban Russian felt that as long as you kind of stayed out of politics, you could have a comfortable life and do most of the things that you wanted, spend your leisure time the way you chose, uh, visit foreign countries um, and get ahead. I, I do think that any any sort of sensitive person in Russia now uh, cannot fail to perceive that um, the level of control over individual behavior and the expression of thoughts is becoming more strict and the response to dissent is becoming harsher. And um, I, I think that combined with the apparently quite significant effects of the sanctions that have been imposed and which are going to become more and more uh, acute in, in coming um, weeks and months um, could could in theory lead to some sort of decline in support for Putin, um, although that doesn't seem to be happening yet, at least as far as hmm. we can see. We were playing portions of the Arnold Schwarzenegger video, and uh, this was released yesterday, and it's basically Arnold's message to uh, the Russian people, who he has a great fondness for and spent a lot of time there, and 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 how they are being misled, and how uh, they need to uh, to really find out what is going on. To talk about that and some of the different strategy going on here, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She's with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, and you hope you are too, Scott. Alyssa, your thoughts on uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger video. Uh, obviously, social media playing a huge part here as uh, he tries to get his message uh, in through the Iron Curtain to those in Russia. Will this have an impact? I think it already is having an impact, Scott. I've sort of been monitoring the situation, just sitting in my, you know, in my own house here. But, um, you know, it's interesting because, first of all, we have to remember who Schwarzenegger is. He really is an international star, number one. Number two, he has political experience. You know, we mm. recall he was the governor of California from 2003 to 2011. So what he has done, very interestingly, is create an easy-to-follow and believable and empathetic narrative so that people do not dismiss what he's saying merely as clickbait or trying to, um, you know, gain propaganda for himself, but really trying to weave a story about who he is. And he even goes into his father's Nazi past, which I thought yeah. was very interesting. But the way he linked that into the narrative of saying, okay, this is not about Nazism, this is not about this, I'm appealing to you as at the Russian people. Mm-hmm. And whenever you engage in this type of narrative, Scott, the first thing that you want to do is not blame. And he makes it very, very clear that he is not. this is not a war of the Russian people, but this is a war of Putin. And this kind of echoes some of the old strategies done through the Cold War, um, you know, when the Allies were trying to get messages across, saying this is what is really happening, and uh, trying to get their side of the story um, out. And it it appears that, you know, both the U.S. State Department and Arnold Schwarzenegger are trying to appeal to Russians and giving them their side of the story and to, and what this war really means both to russia the everyday russian and to ukrainians and we certainly know the the powerful speeches presentations that ukrainian president uh, Zelensky has made including with canada's parliament the uk and and congress and the united states complete with a video and in stark contrast you've got you know the the uh, the pr arm of vladimir putin which you see shots of him you know about 10 meters away from everybody else at a table um, you know there's no there's no sort any sort of social contact there whatsoever now though he's doing the big rallies and sort of the donald trump kind of uh, approach where uh you know he's doing he's trying to rally the troops here is this a response that he's losing that pr war to not only the president of the ukraine but perhaps even arnold and others like that you took the phrase right out of my mouth scott pr war hmm. so while putin is waging a war a real war he realizes, and his image is very, very important to him. I mean, do you remember all those photos oh, that yeah. uh, used to come out of him when he was bare-chested on a horse? On the horse, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, showing how virile he was and how strong he was. So here he is being absolutely outplayed on every single channel um, around the world. So, you know, when I saw that rally picture, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how did they actually gather all these people? And you can imagine how they gathered them, Scott, Mm, and put them in a room and said, wave and shout or else. So those of us who have always been um, skeptical of uh, Russian images and Russian narratives and Russian politics will certainly look at this and say, okay, well, you know, this could be a political, uh, any typical political rally where it's very biased and everybody's, you know, um, supporting, you know, Vladimir Putin right now, one of the most reviled um, men in the world. And what's interesting and what both Arnold Schwarzenegger and Zelensky have in common is that they have both been actors hmm. and they have both been um, you know widely acclaimed in their craft in within their own countries and I think it makes a really big difference and look at Ronald Reagan very yeah. very skilled orator so when you have that trained and innate ability to appeal to an audience you can have all the bells and whistles you want and balloons dropping and signs waving and lights blaring but if you are not believable, nor do you have command of speaking and, and, and uh, motivating large groups of people, it doesn't really matter what you do. There you have it, the message uh, over bombs. Alyssa Freeman with his PR and pop culture expert. As always, Alyssa, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. To the soldiers who are listening to this, remember that 11 million Russians have family connections to Ukraine. So every bullet you shoot, you shoot a brother or a sister. Every bomb or every shell that falls is falling not on an enemy, but on a school or a hospital or a home. All right, we played you some excerpts uh, from the Arnold Schwarzenegger video that uh, he released the other day and is uh, going across social media channels hoping that it will penetrate Russia. Obviously, the message is controlled there, but we are hearing that some is getting through. Uh, Also, that there are protests there, so uh, there obviously is some resistance. Is the message getting through, or is this a divided society? Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, great to have you back. Hope you're doing well. I'm fine, Scott. Hope you are too. So is this message getting through? Is it reaching the Russian people? Messages such as what Arnold Schwarzenegger is saying, or just that this war is a, is quite a bit different than what uh, the picture that they have been painted? I think the message is getting through. We don't know exactly to what extent, but um, if we look back you know, 50 years or so, to the beginnings of the Cold War and the arguments between the West and the Soviet bloc, this is exactly what happened at the begin- right after World War II, where there were efforts made by Warsaw Pact countries, by the Soviet Union, by NATO countries, the United States, Canada, Britain, etc., trying to get a message through the sort of battle of ideas. And it's that same battle of ideas that's going on now. In the olden days, as it were, back in the at the beginnings of the Cold War, the technology was mostly radio. Um, and the method of achieving those messages into the into the Soviet Union was through shortwave services run by Voice of America, the BBC. Uh, Radio Canada International, part of the CBC service, beamed in uh, reliable information uh, into those Soviet countries. And it got through. We know that the most popular programs in Soviet Russia were the jazz shows broadcast by the Voice of America. Mm. And they were incredibly popular, and especially in countries like Czechoslovakia and Poland and Romania, where jazz became a kind of de facto subversive message uh, about how the culture of the Soviet bloc was being undermined, could be undermined by, by, by culture. Uh, And the jazz programs did, in my opinion, more to undermine the kind of uh, uh, concrete approach to culture that the Soviet Union had. Now we've got the Internet, of course, and that's made 
it both more complicated, but also easier in some ways, so that uh, people are downloading information. The Arnold Schwarzenegger video, uh, my guess is it's been seen millions of times. Um, he is seen as a bit of a cultural hero. He's not a jazz musician, but he is a cultural uh, idea more than mm -hmm. anything else. And I think that that's going to be the, the, uh, the way in which the message about what's going on in Russia now and what the Russians are doing in Ukraine uh, is getting through to the Russian people. Uh, and I think that, that we're going to see a lot more of this going on uh, as we use the internet and as the Russians use the internet for other purposes. It seems that China is able to keep more of a lid on this sort of thing and the message to their citizens than Russian uh, than Russia is. Why is that? It's a more uh, monolithic culture in China. I'm told I'm not a Chinese expert, but I'm told that the way information is used and the way people acknowledge the use of information that comes from a central source is more valid. Uh, in Chinese society than it is in Russian society. And there are historical reasons for that. Uh, but I think that what we're, what we're going to find out is that even with the kind of um, iron curtain or bamboo curtain, as it was known in China, there are ways in which information gets through. I know from my teaching at, out at Scarborough, and I had a lot of students from mainland China, and they are very adept at interpreting, understanding, communicating, sharing, using uh, TikTok, uh, among yeah. other uh, platforms that uh, we uh, older people are not so, so used to. But boy, oh boy, do they know what they're doing and they know how to get that information out there. And I think the any attempt by either the Russian government or the Beijing government is really doomed to fail because it's not so much the information stream, although that's pretty important, but it's the kind of cultural values that go mm. along with it. And I that's think an interesting that point, Jeff. Let me ask you another point. We've only got about a minute left here. Uh, obviously, two different, very, very different presentations from Putin and Zelensky. Obviously, Zelensky, a master, he's an actor, he knows how to do this, very similar to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Putin, on the other hand, seems cold, distant. You see him at a meeting, he's, you know, five or six meters away from his closest staff member. But now he's moved to so, almost uh, the Donald Trump template, and now he's trying to rally people in big stadiums. What are your thoughts? Well, he can try, but um, my sense is from just catching the news on a on an ongoing on a constant basis, is that uh, the people in Russia are not really convinced, especially in the big cities. And I think that that's going to be a big challenge for the Russian government. Is try you can't bludgeon people into submission forever. Uh, mm. The old Soviet Union found that out. Uh, and and so did the Soviet bloc. And I think that the Putin and his uh, supporters will find that out pretty quickly, too. One thing we need to do here in Canada is figure out a way of getting our news and information out there. And unfortunately, Radio Canada International, which used to be our yeah. version of Voice of America, those transmitters were taken down and destroyed by the old CBC a few years ago. And so we, we're going to need really smart information being sent on the Internet and also using our cultural frameworks to help people understand what's going on. You know, I, I, I looked this up because, you know, we're getting ready to talk to Ian Lee, Associate Professor of Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, about nearly 3,000 Canadian Pacific Railway workers who could go on strike uh, coming up this weekend. And I thought, well, didn't we have one? And sure enough, CP, or sorry, CN, uh, same sort of thing, but this was just before the pandemic. So sort of one at each end. Uh, let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting. So we have a, a seems to strike at the beginning and the end of this pandemic at either end of it. 
Yeah, uh, uh, Scott, this this strike, I will predict with great confidence, and I'll give you my data in a moment, is going to end very quickly, if it does mm-hmm. even start. They're still negotiating. They said they're negotiating right up to the last minute. Uh, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the CP uh, served a notice of a lockout. The union served notice of a strike. Why am I saying it's going to get, if they do go on strike, it's going to be legislated back to work? Because in 2014... I did some neat little research and it wasn't I was just there were there were Stephen Harper was the prime minister and he was legislating a union back to work. It was obviously under federal jurisdiction. And there were all kinds of people saying, oh, that terrible Harper, you know, he hates unions and this. And I said, wait a minute. I have no you know, I don't belong to any political party. But I said, that's they've been legislating workers back to work all my adult life. So I went to the Library of Parliament. Uh, and they have superb researchers. I said, look, I want to, I don't have the time and you've got the records to find out all the times that the parliament has legislated striking workers back to work federally in our country after the second world war. They said, sure. They looked it up from 1950 we used to 2014, 35 times in our country, Hmm. our country, Canada, from 1950 to 2014 when I did the paper, Parliament, successive parliaments, liberal and conservative governments, legislated 35 strikes back to work. What was so significant about that, Scott? 34 of 35 were in the transportation sector. Hmm. Railroads, ports, airports, airlines. If you were in transportation and you went on strike, you were legislated back to work. And, and the data was fascinating, Scott, because not only did they give me the date, they gave me the bill number, they gave me the date of first reading, second reading, third reading, and both the House and the Senate and the date it was passed, assigned by the Governor General into law. And we're not talking six months between first and second reading. Sometimes Parliament legislated it back first, second, third reading, boom, 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 all in one day. Like they went lickety split. And so my point was, and this was under liberal governments, under Pierre Trudeau, 14 times out of the 35 were done by his government over the many years he was in office, of course. And so I concluded that the successive parliaments, successive governments in our country have established the de facto policy that if you are in the Fed transportation sector regulated by the government of Canada, they will not tolerate strikes. You will be legislated back to work, period. No exceptions. So I predict that's what going, is going to happen. And th- the strikes would run in the past literally two or three days yeah. before Parliament would step in. It wasn't two or three months or two or three weeks. No, no, and no. We, remember, we remember that back in 2019, just before COVID, with the, the CN strike, and, and then the issues were getting propane to uh, you know, parts of the country so they could yeah. make sure they kept crops dry and such. And it wasn't very long before it was... Uh, in fact, uh, uh, you know, legislated back to work. Uh, however, now we've got obvious supply chain issues. So will it even get that far? You're absolutely right. And and again, so people may say, well, you know, I don't use railroads. Look, it, it, you should look at the number of companies. There are 45 organizations and agencies across Canada who have preemptor on a preemptory basis contacted the federal government and said, don't let this happen. The Saskatchewan um, Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian Canola Growers Association, the Food Producers of Canada, the Petroleum Services Association of Canada. I mean, uh, uh, municipalities. I mean, it's it has such an impact on the whole logistics and supply system in our country. It's tra- it's not visible to you and I. I mean, I don't sit around looking at the logistics system. I just go to grocery stores and buy my groceries or wherever I'm, you know, or go to stores. It is absolutely the backbone of our country. And we're a huge, enormous country, almost 9,000 kilometers long, second largest in the world. And that, I argued, was why the government was doing successive governments. It wasn't because they don't like unions. They understand our economy is so dependent on the inf- the transportation infrastructure that if you're working in that sector, you basically do not have the right to strike. Even if you do in law, you don't because they will legislate you back to work. So is this, says. is this a good time to be negotiating a contract or a bad time considering where the world is with supply chains and the global pandemic? Um, 
I mean, you would think that you have a lot of leverage, um, that the mm -hmm. union would have a lot of leverage, and I understand the argument of that. But I think that people are so freaked out right now, to use a very unacademic term, we're so nervous, we're so frightened of both inflation, food shortages, uh, the war in Ukraine cutting off food supply, uh, wheat supplies, that I, I don't think there's going to be any tolerance or appetite uh, by Parliament on this, I'm, I, what they'll usually do in the legislation is they'll impose a settlement in the sense they'll put, send them to uh, a mandatory um, a mediation. Um, mm -hmm. So it's not as if they're going to be discriminated against. They will set up a dispute resolution that's fair to both the labor and the, the union and the management, um, but they won't let the uh, either side hold the country hostage. And I think there's less tolerance today, which means in plain English, I think Parliament will move even more quickly to legislate them back to work than in, in more, quote, normal times. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. What are your thoughts on this? Um, it, it seems that this is, you know, we can't provide a no-fly zone, but we can certainly provide a PR war. Well, it, maybe. Um, as you say, who knows how much of this is being seen or not being seen. I mean, I saw today that uh, Putin had a giant rally in a 90,000 or 80,000 seat stadium all done up like a pep rally. for. It was very much like the old Donald Trump template here. I mean, obviously, well, look at the contrast in these leaders. It's like, look, it's, it, it can be Donald Trump. It's like any big political rally. I mean, Obama once upon a time had Grecian columns at his rallies. I mean, <laughs> they, they all do their thing, right? Yes. So, but it's a, it's a giant rally to... Now, the, the question is, and the question has been raised, and we don't know the answer to this, that there were suggestions that folks in Russia were required to attend this, like mm -hmm. the old Saddam Hussein... You know, remember when he used to march along the street and everyone waved the flags and the yeah. palm fronds and everything? And we heard, if you didn't come out of your house, they would do something bad to you. So who knows? I mean, you, it's propaganda, it's PR, whatever. But look, whether or not uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's message gets there, it'll get to some, somehow. And the question is, are you going to believe it? And and. You know, that's, that's the toughest part, because if you've grown up with something, if you've grown up believing something, it's really hard hmm. to allow yourself to now believe that everything you were told is wrong. And it's the interesting. leaders that you have been listening to all your life that you believed in have been wrong. That's tough. It's interesting because we're all assuming, and I've been talking to various communication and political uh, experts over the course of the show on this, and um, you know we're just assuming the message isn't getting through, very much like the Chinese Communist Party. However, Russia is 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 a lot different than the Chinese Communist Party, who really have control over what is going on. Uh, not necessarily the case in Russia. A lot more leaks, a lot more uh, avenues for that information to get through. Uh, many, some. Well, I shouldn't say many but but also it's been presented that it's not as much that it's not getting through but the society is still quite divided in russia as to whether this is the right thing to do or not sure and and let's hope that it is getting through because i think yeah. that it will resonate with some and you know that's that's another issue that i thought of when i watched this i watched it today actually and i bet a lot of other people have as they've been listening to your show and hearing clips they'll go and watch it uh, hopefully not between six and eight while the Scott Radley show is on, but right after eight, you can feel free. Uh, <laughs> but um, but something else that dawned on me as I watched this today was, I think what Arnold Schwarzenegger did here and how he did it was really smart, because it was a very compassionate plea to the people. It was not, look, you people are idiots. Stop yeah. doing what you're doing. And I thought, why are... So Arnold has done this. Why have this celebrity, so many celebrities... In the states, why do they not take the same approach which they're, with their own people? Why, why do these celebrities reach out, and, and why is it always angry towards Americans who don't agree with mm. them, or Canadians or other people? This is this to me seems like a far more effective tool than simply screaming at people for being bad or wrong or thinking the wrong way or voting for the wrong person. This has a chance to be effective, I think. Whereas if Arnold had got on there and screamed at them and said, you people are all genocidal maniacs, 
nobody would have listened. You bring up a very valid point. Alyssa Freeman commented on that uh, earlier today when we were chatting about it. He appealed to his love for Russia. He appealed to the Russian people who inspired him way back when, and now something has gone completely wrong. And again, talking about your brothers, your sisters, and talk about his own family experience and, and his father's and experience as a soldier. Father, even yes, yeah. For being on yeah. the wrong side. Yeah. Yeah, and, and but you're absolutely right. Uh, rather than you know, my, I'm right, you're wrong. He he found some sort of common ground. Sure, he did. And look, with with his with his history, with his persona, with Arnold the actor, he could have easily been the muscle flexing, literally and figuratively, the muscle flexing guy who said, "Stop yeah. it." You're we saw more of the governor of California coming out than we did of the bodybuilder. Yes. yes, and I would I would think to myself as I was watching that. How different would our politics be in North America? Because I think that Canada is being affected by a lot of the same thing the states has. How different would our politics and our discussions be if that was the, uh, the, the way that we approach certain things with people we disagree with, rather than screaming and canceling and calling them this kind of ist and that kind of ist and everything else? It, it, boy, I, I watched it and I thought to myself, that is a guy who... Um, who, who, who probably has found a way that he's not going to appeal to every Russian, but I guarantee you there will be some that will, even if they don't agree with him, they will listen and they will reflect. And that's all I think you can ask from a message like that. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.